It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. For the last several years, hateful incidents have been on the rise in the U.S., and many people seem more and more comfortable expressing their hate out in the open. Why is this happening now, and what can we do about it as a society? We've learned during this time that mere exposure to diversity, mere exposure or even, you know, some level of education in what people who don't look like you or don't come from the places where your ancestors come from may not be sufficient. It may be necessary, but it's insufficient. The problem of hate is complex and multifaceted, and so the solution has to be too. In today's episode, we hear from civic leaders and researchers who are working to track these incidents, protect victims, and stop hate from spreading. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The panelists are Manjusha Kulkarni, the Executive Director of AAPI Equity Alliance, Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, and Dana Kester, Media Professor at West Virginia University. The conversation is moderated by Eric Liu, the co-founder and CEO of Citizen University and the director of the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. Here's Liu. We were talking earlier uh, about uh, the topic today, Stopping Hate is the title of this session, uh, and implied in Stopping Hate um, is is two things. Uh, Number one, that it can be stopped, uh, but number two, Uh, that there's, you know, if you stop the hate, that there's something else to do uh, in the affirmative. And we're going to talk about both dimensions uh, uh, of what's implied in the session title here. But I want to begin with an opening question that I'll pose uh, in common to all three of our panelists and invite them each to speak for a few minutes uh, about the question as it relates to their work. Um, And the question really is just recognizing this, that, uh, you know, we we, we love to talk about how love is eternal, uh, and we rarely like to acknowledge that Hate is eternal, that hate has been with us from the, from the beginning, that hate will be with us uh, ever after. Uh, and yet, as we gather here today, here in the United States in 2022 and, and in other ways around the world, but particularly here in America, um, there has been something of an inflection point. There's been, if you will, a climate change uh, around hate. Uh, and uh, the question that brings us together here today uh, as we see in mass shootings and the rising incidents uh, and severity of those kinds of incidents, uh, as we see in uh, people emboldened uh, to march in public places carrying tiki torches and uh, saying they will not be replaced, as you see uh, uh, video after video um, of elderly, but actually Asian Americans of all different ages and generations um, uh, during this era of the pandemic uh, getting assaulted Um, uh, literally for uh, the way they look uh, and for the ways in which the way they look is attached to uh, narratives and conspiracy theories uh, about pandemic in our times right now. Um, And these are just the visible dimensions uh, as our online audience is attuned to right now. um, What is not as readily visible in day-to-day face-to-face life um, is the absolute explosion, contagion of hate um, on online platforms, both the well-known and otherwise. And so um, the opening question that I want to pose to all three of you is, um, you know, what is it about this moment in our society's life that is leading to this surge 
um, of hate, of hate incidents, of a kind of miasmic uh, spread uh, uh, of a normalization of hate in public and civic life. And from each of your spec pers uh, perspectives and the work that you do, um, how would you speak to that question? Um, well, I really appreciate how you framed it, Eric, because hate, unfortunately, uh, against the Asian American and Pacific Islander community has been with us really since the founding of the country. Um, the first exclusionary immigration act was against Asian women, which is Chinese women labeling all of them as prostitutes, essentially, and forbidding them from coming to the United States. Um, you know, in the 1980s, we had the killing of Vincent Chin, um, mistaking, you know, perpetrators mistaking him for a Japanese American and for the loss of their jobs. Um, but what we see now is absolutely due to the pandemic. Right, and the causal connections that have been drawn by a lot of our political leaders connecting COVID-19 with the Asian American community. And in fact, the um, uh, TAF, the Asian American Foundation, did a survey recently that found that even now, one in five Americans blame our community, uh, the Asian American Pacific Islander community for COVID. Um, so before I get into the details of what's been going on, I actually wanted to share um, an incident that was reported to my organization, Stop AAPI Hate, we're the nation's leading aggregator. Um, and this is a direct quote. I was waiting in line at a hardware store. A man cut in front of me, so I mentioned that there was a line and pointed to it. He yelled out, stupid effing chink, go back to your country. Do you effing speak English? So I apologize for that language, but this was an example, um, something that happened to a young woman in Los Angeles um, just uh, last year, right? So we see that our community members have been impacted just in how they live their daily lives. So what's the who, what, where, when, and why? The who. We've received over 11,000 incident reports from all 50 states in the District of Columbia. A majority of those are from women. Uh, but we know that uh, across the board, AAPIs have been impacted. So it's not simply Chinese Americans, but also Southeast Asians, South Asians like myself, and even Pacific Islanders. Um, what we also know um, is that this is just the tip of the iceberg, which is that Pew Research Center found that 45% of AAPIs experienced hate. That's roughly eight to 10 million individuals just in the last two years. So what, what's the what? It is largely verbal harassment, but incidents also include physical attacks, um, civil rights violations in the workplace, refusal of service in retail. Um, and what's really important for everyone here to know, the vast majority of these are not crimes. And so they're not hate crimes. So we need really comprehensive solutions when we talk about this. And secondly, that they are, um, there's not a single profile of perpetrators, they come from all communities. Mm. Um, and then just really in terms of um, the why, we know that unfortunately President Trump brought on a lot of this, making that connection using terms like Wuhan virus, China virus, and Kung flu. And from that time on, we saw those incidents uh, continue <clears throat> to take place and, and they've increased really unabated. We're going to come back to a couple of the points that you made, Manju, particularly around the, the fact that these are not necessarily crimes under law, 
um, but they get to matters of norms and culture. And we'll get back to that point, which I think is really important. But Jonathan, um, this, this moment, uh, what, what is it about this moment in this surge that you, you and ADL are tracking, combating, uh, yeah. experiencing? Well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I think, first of all, just to level set and build upon what, what was said previously, there's no question that hate is empirically on the rise. So the FBI reports hate crimes, and the last data that we have for 2020 reported a 12% increase in hate crimes, anti-black hate crimes are still the most prominent, followed by anti-LGBTQ hate crimes. In the faith-based hate crimes, we see that Jews are about 60% of those, despite the fact that we're just about 2% of the overall US population. Uh, at the ADL, we also very closely track anti-Semitic incidents. In 2021, we tracked 2,717 incidents. And again, to build on what was said, these aren't just felonies or misdemeanors. These are acts of harassment, intimidation, marginalization that might not rise the level of law enforcement, but we track it. A kid being bullied at school, we track it. We have 25 offices across the United States that actually investigate every, every incident that we report. My staff investigated over 9,600 incidents in 2021. And only 2,700 plus, we would call actually an anti-Semitic incident. So there's a lot of stuff that's happening, and I also agree that it's vastly underreported. Why is this happening? I think we see stereotyping often increases and surges when systems fail, right? When politics isn't working or markets aren't working, people look for someone to blame. The API person standing in line, the Jewish person who's behind some perceived conspiracy. So COVID really accelerated and exacerbated these trends. Politicians who weaponize hate as part of their agenda are a big part of the problem too. And I would really say we shouldn't look, white nationalism, as Eric mentioned it before, is the single most significant threat to the republic, I might argue, in many respects. The vast majority of the violent extremist-related murders over the last 30 years have been committed by white supremacists, right-wing extremists. So we should not understate the threat. And at the same time, as I just mentioned, anti-Semitic incidents reached a record number, number last year, the highest total we've seen in 42 years of tracking this data. And President Trump was gone. We had Jews being attacked in broad daylight last May, prompted by the fighting in Gaza, in New York City, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in Las Vegas. And the people assaulting them weren't wearing MAGA hats, okay? They weren't carrying Trump signs. So this is an issue on both sides. I think hate is like a contagion that is spreading, becoming normalized in our political discourse. And I believe that's a danger to all of us. Dana, Jonathan just used the word weaponized, um, which itself can be um, taken literally and figuratively, right? Uh, we, we have seen in the surge of um, gun violence uh, that is connected to, to hate, um, the, the actual physical weaponization, but um, a lot of what you've been tracking in this time is the, the ways in which, as a matter of intimidation, political pressure building, norm setting, uh, this weaponization is happening in a more figurative way. Um, from what you see in your work in Appalachia, the same question, why? Why this surge right now and how much of it is about uh, pandemic or um, political leaders whose example trickles down uh, and how much of it is about uh, you know, things rooted in place that are deep longstanding 
uh, challenges of, like the ones that uh, you, you observe every day? Well, I, I would say it's all of those things and, and more. And, and, and so I've spent the last five years uh, working on a documentary that we're finishing right now called Raised by Wolves. And it looks specifically at the online and offline worlds of, of children in Appalachia and rural America and what they're exposed to. Um, we, and we are also living in legitimately apocalyptic times. And um, I, like to, I, I like people to sort of sit with me in the space that our young people are in and look at the future and this world through their eyes and what they observe. Um, I'm often uh, told that I have to make my research more palatable for adult audiences because it would be too, too traumatic for you to see what our, our children see. Um, it, is a, it has been a years-long, daily, hourly, endless scroll stream of memes and jokes and content um, that are soul-deadening. It is um, misogynistic. Uh, all, uh, all of the forms of hate are, are manifesting in, um, in these memes, but it is also mixed with violence, gore, um, pornography, um, so it is a shame-inducing cocktail. And the, I want to bring up shame, because shame is really important. Shame is part of violence. Th those are two of the conditions that you need for people to move toward violence. And, um, and in our region, we have, we have a people, uh, especially young people, um, that know where they sit in relationship to power structures in the rest of the world. Um, but shame is not something they bring to that. Shame is a shadow that media and the rest of the world cast on them. So we have to understand that that's an ingredient. Um, the, uh, the other thing that I would say is, uh, you know, my research partner just a couple weeks ago, as we were looking at some of this truly soul-deadening content, um, said, uh, there's nothing left for late capitalism to extract from Appalachia, so it's extracting our children's souls. And so I just want you to think about that, and then I want to uh, leave you with a, uh, a statement from a, a child we were interviewing, a, a teen now, um, about their exposure to gore and violence online. And he said, I stopped feeling anything in the fifth grade. Wow. I, okay, I want to pick up on a few things, Dana, that you just said that, um, th that I think thread through everything that's been said so far. This idea of <laughs> shame being very connected to violence um, is, of course, connected to the ways in which um, when we're talking at a systemic scale, systems breaking down leads people to scapegoat, yeah. right? Um, uh, fear leads people, uh, or pain or anxiety leads people to, to blame. Um, when we begin to reckon with, and I, and I actually before, I don't want to pivot too quickly to, okay, how do we fix this? Right? <laughs> I actually think Dana inviting us to sit there and imagine scrolling through, much less creating some of this content that uh, she and her team have to sift through, to imagine sitting through uh, those 9,000 uh, reported incidents that Jonathan's team of you know, only a few hundred people uh, have had to um, navigate and, and respond to, not just observe, but respond to. Um, these 11,000 incidents, right? Um, just sitting with that and to think about how behind each of those incidents, is not only an act of hate, of physical violence or intimidation or harassment, um, but is also some noxious, toxic cocktail of shame, fear, anxiety, um, other feelings uh, that led people to this in the first place, mm. right? That led people to commit these acts. And I'm wondering 
not so much um, you know, in a pure, like, let's jump ahead to empathize with the, with the perpetrator, but even in the work of trying to address and stop and combat this hate, how much do you and your teams think about really trying to step into the shoes uh, of those who are committing these acts? Um, and what is that teaching you so far about prevention uh, and about um, ways to, to limit the harm? And any of you can jump in first. Well, so at ADL, we do a lot of work with former white supremacists mm. and as well as some with former Islamic extremists. I can tell you that a lot of times people move into these spaces because they feel they're kind of seduced and drawn in. And especially for young people who may feel alienated for whatever reason, let alone adults, uh, these groups offer a kind of affiliation and an affinity which can satisfy a part of their identity that otherwise feels incomplete. And look, demagogues and partisans play on this and exploit and say, it's the Kung flu that's making you sick. And I mean, we've seen that with ugly effectiveness. And so I think that we, we find that if you can, and, and by the way, I like, I often will say, I don't believe in cancel culture, I believe in council culture. Mm -hmm. So if someone will acknowledge the error you can bring them in and they admit they're failing, you got to embrace them. And I think some of our best advocates at ADL and in the fight against hate, it's not just our fight, it's everyone's fight. The fight against anti-Semitism isn't just my fight, it's yours. Just like the fight against anti-Sikh bias isn't just someone's fight, it's my fight too. So the former white supremacist, the former KKK person is sometimes our most effective advocate as to how to turn this around. You know, J Jonathan just alluded to our friend Simran Singh, who's uh, here uh, in the room and directs uh, a program at the Aspen Institute on religion and society. And uh, Manju, it actually makes me think about, you know, all members of the AAPI community uh, today and from the beginning have labored under a, a default setting, a presumption, right? For, assume, presumed foreign until proven otherwise, right? And often there's no standard by which you can actually prove sufficiently otherwise to some folks, right? Um, and again, when you take this mindset of what is it that drives an individual or a community to suddenly want to embrace this kind of scapegoating hate, um, what have you learned just in this last couple of years about how at an, at an individual level you can shift those presumptions, shift people to start actually seeing you or me um, or you know, uh, Simran or anyone else, um, first, as a human, secondly, as presumptively belonging uh, in America, uh, and then third, with curiosity, like, okay, tell me your story, right? What, what have you learned so far about how you can even um, block or, or bypass that first reflex that comes in the minds of so many, not just perpetrators of hate, but quite frankly, plenty of Americans uh, um, who still will ask, people like you and me, accomplished as we may be, sitting at a panel at uh, Aspen as we may be, uh, you know, the, the age-old question, which feels cliche to us, but where are you from? Well, I'm from Poughkeepsie. <laughs> uh, no, 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 where are you really from, right? Where are you really from? Uh, and, you know, we're tired of hearing that. Uh, uh, and, uh, but how do, you, how do you bypass or preempt that, uh, uh, that, that reflex? Perpetual foreignness has been with us, right, for decades. And I think the fact that, you know, we may look different, right, we may eat different foods, causes folks to, to see us differently, right? Um, and unfortunately, too often it's also those policies, right? So I mentioned before the PAGE Act, there was also folks 
probably know about the Chinese Exclusion Act, but there was even the Asiatic Barred Zone Act of 1917 that prevented all Asians from coming to the United States really until 1965 in the Immigration Act that allowed families like my own to come. Um, and you're absolutely right. Even my kids get asked, you know, where are you from? Where are you really from? Um, I think what the solution there is, is the education piece, piece that Jonathan mentioned, which is um, really teaching you know, in schools ethnic studies, right? And right now we see anything related to teaching accurate history uh, as being suspect or, and problematic, but that's how you get to uh, really understanding communities and not using sort of false assumptions and then not getting those assumptions weaponized, right? Because essentially we sh showed through a report we did in 2021 that the words that were used by President Trump and others in 30% of incidents actually put people in harm's way, resulted in those physical attacks, resulted in the discrimination. So that's why that education piece is so important for us. You know, I wanna build on the education piece and Dana, obviously you're, you're connected to an education institution um, and you work with young people, um, both studying, you know, some of the, the, the these civic afflictions that are besetting them, and and also, you know, finding the opportunities uh, uh, for hope where they may be. Uh, but one of the things that you know, I think, what we've learned over time here, and what the United States has learned since at least 1965, right? Since we got on a path to where demographically it is now, po well, demographically today it is the case. It's not just that a a majority people of color nation is coming. A majority of people of color literally has been born, right? The babies today um, are, are more not white than white, right? Uh, and it will take many years for that to uh, tip into the broader population. But um, we've learned during this time that mere exposure to diversity, mere exposure or even you know, some level of education in what people who don't look like you or don't come from the places where your ancestors come from may not be sufficient. It may be necessary, but it's insufficient. And in today's, again, um, hyperpolarized, dehumanizing, um, cynically weaponized political culture, things like ethnic studies um, become things, be, get turned into a, a mythic monster beast called CRT, critical race theory, right? Uh, which in turn itself becomes weaponized as a, oh, that's a zero sum thing. They're this is part of how all of these people of color are trying to quote, replace me um, as a white person, right? And so in an education context, Dana, um, how do you think um, it is possible to create a bigger story of us um, that is not zero sum, right? Because a lot of the driver of that shame, fear, pain that leads to hate um, presumes in the first place that life is zero sum and that if more people are getting included then I'm getting less. Um, and what have you found, you know, in Appalachia has a long history of being on the short end of a lot of economic privation that has felt zero sum to a lot of people, right? How well, do you shift that norm? I'm actually glad you brought up CRT because in fact, 100 Days in Appalachia is, is a CRT counter narrative. I mean, that's its, it's, its impetus. So um, it's about a more inclusive story that rejects the dominant um, narratives that have been told about Appalachia. So there are, I think there are incredible pride of place opportunities to move toward um, common ground. And I know that seems trite, but there, there really are significant opportunities that are being overlooked. And also when there are many other complicated actors 
that are very sophisticated information <clears throat> warfare that are weaponizing human fears. Normal, and, and I will also say that youth of color are also susceptible in these spaces because there's highly targeted grievances that can be manipulated toward, um, toward, toward violence and, and, and hate. Um, so one of the things that we try and do from an education standpoint is also work directly with young people, see them with dignity and as the experts they are um, in their lives in this time um, in, in solutions building and also help them understand how they are being manipulated. And, and I also want to caution, it's hard for all of us. I mean, I, I work with researchers all the time to really wrap our arms around how complex the mechanics of this are. It's not just that there's a bad actor. There's a lot of bad actors that have different ideological, profit, political, um, uh, political motivations that are at work in these spaces. And oftentimes when young people find themselves being moving toward um, a violent organization, it's not because they showed up with you know, guns and hands and, and memes, it's because they came there offering a sense of purpose, meaning you're depressed, mm. you don't have health care, here's alternative you know, opportunities for you, here's, here's how you can feel resilient. I mean, things that we should be just teaching and celebrating and, and I dare I say weaponizing actually um, from, you know, towards social good um, because uh, that's, that's happening um, in all of these other factions. Um, but when young people, and it's easier to have empathy for young people, but we also work with adults in, who are in service-oriented um, industries like first responders and veterans who are also susceptible, looking for meaning and, and purpose and identity, um, that when they begin to understand how the mechanics of that work, that, make, that alone makes them more resilient. Mm. One of the things I love about what you just said, Dana, is, I mean, you're complicating the narrative on multiple levels, right? Um, and so certainly complicating the narrative about who we are as Americans, but even within Appalachia and even... Um, that, that don't, don't create a simple one-dimensional story um, of people in Appalachia or rural America. One of our mutual friends and collaborators um, an organization, uh, 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 well, the, the, another media outlet called The Daily Yonder, um, uh, started by the Center for Rural Strategies, um, like 100 Days in Appalachia, is not only uh, a, a documenting of bad stuff that is happening or dangerous trends or... Um, you know, so some of these maladaptive things that are emerging in communities that have lost their purpose or there is pain or uh, the opioid epidemic, which has become the master narrative of Appalachia. Mm -hmm. uh, but, it, the, but both these outlets are telling affirmative stories of people fixing stuff, people finding purpose in affirmative ways, people building, uh, rehumanizing communities, uh, young people building cross-generational approaches to restoring hope uh, in a place that has often been deprived of that. And, uh, it's this theme of hope, Jonathan, that I want to come back to you. We were talking before the gathering started, um, you know, and I, and I posed a, a question, which is, what's the opposite of hate? And I, I think our instincts uh, are, of course, well, love is the opposite of hate. But Jonathan, you had a slightly different take on it to share with the group. Yeah, I, <clears throat> look, I think the opposite of hate is hope. Because I think hate is, is, hope. is <laughs> hope. Hope. Because I think hate is something, again, it's sort of this corrosive force that unravels things, that plays on our pessimism, that exploits our fear, right? That drives people apart. I think it's hope that speaks to our optimism that can actually bring people together. I mean, our theory of change at ADL is, 
look, we have to investigate and protect communities. They need a kind of security to prevent hate from happening in that moment. When people, are, when people want to murder, murder Americans where they pray or where they shop, to harass them when they stand in line at a store, there's a need for a kind of security. That's the immediate and the short term. In the medium term, we believe in advocacy. Changing laws through the courts or in Congress to fight discrimination and to push back on prejudice to create a more hospitable climate. And there's lots of things happening right now in Washington and at the state level that's very concerning to us. But in the long run, I think you engender hope through education. That's why ADL is one of the largest providers in America of anti-bias, anti-bullying content in schools. We reached between three and a half and four million school children last year. And you know, sometimes we see the anti-CRT crazies, try, like in Alabama, they banned ADL content from schools because they said we're teaching CRT. We're not. But I think the idea of bringing kid, young people together, and our stuff, interestingly, isn't just curricular. It's extracurricular, it's activities, it's assemblies, it's bringing people together. If we foster hope, if we connect, not, we can only have safety, not just through security, but through solidarity. It is by fostering hope that we actually win this fight. Right, there's a few things, uh, Manju, that I really <coughs> want to pick up on right there. You started earlier uh, by talking about the relationship between culture and policy, right? That a lot of these acts that you're, organizations cataloging are not necessarily crimes under law, but are examples of a culture that is sick, right? Uh, and when Jonathan speaks there about this, in the longer view, uh, the role not only of education, but the role of um, bottom-up responsibility taking, right? Culture comes down to, you know, in politics, you might be able to point to President X or Governor so-and-so or Mayor this and say, do something, or say, unfortunately, stop doing something. Right? Um, but when it comes to culture change, we have to look actually at ourselves, uh, at, within ourselves and at each other and ask, what are we doing or what are we failing to do? And um, we were talking yesterday about what are some of the kinds of bottom-up culture changes um, within, within even the AAPI community, um, a community that often has been raised to say, keep your head down, stay out of politics, don't get engaged in civic life, um, you're gonna get, you know, uh, nothing but bad stuff lies down the right. F focus on what you got to focus on, take care of your family. Um, and within this community, there's a lot of almost re-socializing that has to happen that says, we have to take responsibility for changing the narrative and we have to take responsibility for building coalitions of solidarity with people outside our community, right? Um, and what are you, and what is the AAPI Equity Alliance doing to kind of activate that sense of cultural responsibility taking right now across um, racial groups. Right. Well, I want to piggyback on two things that um, both Jonathan and you said, Eric, uh, a few days ago, which is when we look at hope, um, and you mentioned at your workshop, um, you're not optimistic, you're hopeful because hope has agency. <clears throat> Right, and so that's how we approach our work, is that our communities have agency uh, in the narrative change and the cultural shifts that we need, and part of that is civic engagement. So we've been, since 1975, doing civic engagement work, ensuring that our communities vote, 
making sure that they meet with their Congress folks, that they engage in the advocacy piece also that Jonathan mentioned. And in fact, we have a package of bills in the California legislature that looks at comprehensive solutions around street harassment, safety and public transit, and civil rights protections. And we've seen a real upsurge in folks who are engaged in that, uh, engaged in the cultural conversation on like who's on TV, who's represented in media, and who gets elected. And I'm so pleased that so many AAPIs are running for office right now. And I think that's part of the change that we need to see moving forward. Well, I am. Um I want to make sure we spend some time now opening up for a wider conversation. And um, uh, within the room here, uh, we have uh, people uh, running microphones. So, so if you have a question that you'd like to pose, and there's, uh, I see one or two right at the back of the room, um, uh, tell us uh, who you are and where you're, where you're from, and uh, please pose your question. Hi, thank you all so much for being here. I'm Nicole, I'm Jewish and from New York City, and I'm seeing the rise of hate crimes around me. And at the same time, I consider myself an anti-Zionist. So this is a question specifically for you, Mr. Greenblatt. Are you ever concerned that the, the way the ADL sometimes automatically conflates anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism actually worsens the divisions within our own community and, our, and for example, the critiques of organizations like the Jewish Voice for Peace and makes it harder for us to actually build coalitions of solidarity within the Jewish community? I think it's a really good question. I appreciate you asking it. So I don't think we conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, just so we're clear. Like I have a wife who's a person of color, but I don't think that exempts me from necessarily saying something that's racist or offensive. And I think there are many Jews who are anti-Zionist, and that doesn't exclude them from saying or trafficking in anti-Semitic tropes. So I don't conflate anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. I think anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And the way that it manifests on a college campus, or the way that it manifested in New York City last year, when the anti-Zionists who attacked Jews in broad daylight, their crime was wearing a kippah. Their crime wasn't, their crime wasn't, what is your opinion on the settlements? What is your opinion on the occupation? Their crime was being identified as Jews. And there's a reason why after BDS campaigns on college campuses, we see an uptick in swastikas on Jewish fraternities. And there's a reason why after an anti-Zionist group released a map earlier, a couple weeks ago in Boston, attacking Zionism, empire, and oppression, they listed the JCC, and they listed local synagogues, and they listed a Jewish middle school. So in my opinion, again, I can, you can have very strong feelings, extremely strong feelings about the occupation and policy in the Middle East. Or let me actually draw an analogy. You can have very strong feelings about what's happening in Beijing, about the treatment of the Uyghurs, which borders on genocide. Some would say it is an abject genocide. Or about the oppression of democracy activists in Hong Kong, or the surveillance state. But it is unconscionable that anyone would say, therefore, it's okay to attack AAPIs, or therefore, it's okay to harass people because they have a commitment or a faith in their homeland. That is wrong, and it's wrong for people to say they should shut down Asian studies departments. By the same token, you can have strong feelings about what's happening in the Middle East, but to suggest that the only Jewish state in the world shouldn't exist, or that it's okay to attack and marginalize people, identify as Zionist, that isn't just wrong. That's anti-Semitic. Okay, 
Th thank you, uh, Jonathan. And I, I, I do want, again, complexifying the narrative itself in both the question and the answer. Um, I, I appreciate that because I think there, you know, where we are right now as a society um, is being able to see in more than binary and more than uh, two-dimensional uh, two ways um, these issues and these questions uh, and our ability to kind of hold these tensions uh, and really tease apart what is implied both in questions and answers around hate um, is a muscle that everybody here has to build, whether or not anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism um, is quote unquote part of your community's issue set, right? This is part of everybody's here, here. issue set uh, in a way. Um, okay, we'll start with you with the mic and then sir, we'll come to you next. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, I just want to respond quickly to the previous one. I believe my comrade is referring not only to these true incidents of anti-Semitism, but also to the ADL's hate crimes tracker listing incidents of people saying free Palestine as anti-Semitism. And I believe that is the conflation she was referring to. My question, so my name is Elizabeth. I'm a Chinese American. I'm a civil rights attorney and I'm an organizer to defund the police and ultimately to abolish the prison industrial complex. My question is for Manjusha who endorsed the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act and Jonathan who works on extensive hate crimes legislation. How do you respond to the reality that hate crime legislation will not solve white supremacy, but only strengthens and legitimizes the criminal legal system, which already disproportionately targets black and brown folks, including black and brown Asian people, as well as other marginalized AAPIs, including those who are migrants, sex workers, low paid workers, disabled people, trans and non-binary people. How do you respond to the reality that prisons do not stop harm, but merely relocate the harm from the outside to the inside, where violence continues to occur without accountability, especially from prison guards? And further, finally, will you commit to working with the more than 100 AAPI and LGBTQ organizations that signed a letter in 2021 opposing the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act and other hate crime legislation because they are committed to true cross-racial solidarity I'm gonna, I'm gonna let them because the they refuse to strengthen the police state and they refuse to push our black and brown and most marginalized community members under the bus and into cages. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and thank you for your question. So let me clarify, we actually did not come out in support of the COVID-19 hate crimes bill for much of the reasons that you mentioned, which are that we don't believe that criminal law enforcement is the answer. Uh, and in fact, um, that's why I said early on in my remarks that um, the vast majority of incidents, and I, um, as a former civil rights attorney, can tell you are not actually hate crimes. They're hate incidents. And so for that reason, we need more comprehensive solutions. And I want to add another point, too, which is that um, there also are no studies that show that hate crimes prosecutions have a deterrent effect on um, the uh, perpetration of hate crimes. And so that is why we've chosen a public health approach with our package of bills in California. We look at um, uh, civil rights enforcement and uh, also education equity in addition to community safety. Really quick, John, So just I'll say really quickly, so number one, uh, I'm happy to talk to you offline about our hate crimes tracker. Nobody's, look, as someone who is pro-Palestinian, I can still call anti-Zionism out for the anti-Semitism that it is. And no one says pushing for dignity and equality for Palestinians is, a, is a, an equivalent to anti-Semitism. People who say that, that's a fiction, it's a red herring, and it's wrong. Now, with, with respect to your question, we support hate crimes legislation because hate crimes legislation ensures that the public understands that a crime directed not just against an individual because of an immutable characteristic, 
is intended not just to hurt them, but in, to terrorize an entire community. And we agree, just so you understand, that we need in, in look at new models like restorative justice and other techniques. Again, I told you, education is a critical part of solving this problem, but make no mistake, I have been to Pittsburgh. I have been to Poway. My people were in Buffalo for the whole week after that shooting. We were in El Paso. We were in Colleyville. And let me, we were in Oak Creek. John, and I'm let me tell you, you need here. police and law enforcement to protect our communities. That doesn't take the police off the hook for issues of systemic racism or structural racism. But make no mistake, if you ask people in these communities on the ground, they want protection and security. So you can only have safety with security and solidarity. It's not either or, it's both and. Thank you, and um, uh, we've got a question right over here. Oh, thank you very much. Um, and this may be grasping for hope, but in the last six months, a year, I think I've noticed a more a change in, in, this is broadcast media, the language, the accents on, say, NPR. I hear more regional. I hear more ethnic accents. On the other kind of extreme, looking through Vanity Fair, others, I see many more uh, uh, models and, and, and advertisements of different ethnic groups. Now, first, am I just guilty of wishful thinking? Or if it's true, then I want to flip it the other way around in the same way that some say the Obama effect helped stimulate the, 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 the racist population. Does seeing these faces replacing white faces in public media also stimulate the racist uh, in the way that it makes me feel good? Really quickly, actually, Mundry, I want you to speak to that in part because you made a point about representation both in media and other institutions. Uh, but Dana as well, I think we often, when we talk about representation, um, there is a very small flattened picture of what Appalachia is and what rural America is, uh, which is part itself of the kind of stereotyping that begets uh, uh, reactions uh, of uh, resistance and, uh, and, and the attraction of hate. So I'd love you both to speak to this question of representation and its effects. Uh, yeah, I mean, I spoke earlier about how, I mean, we, we continue. There's not a sitcom or uh, elite media article that, you know, I can read that still doesn't um, cast poverty, just being rural as, as, a, as a place of shame. And um, so that, that's one thing. I, I do want to say, though, to speak to hope for you, is when children online are left to their own devices in Discord servers, where also there are really a lot of bad actors who are there to manipulate them, but left to their own devices, they build borderless communities, and it's extraordinary to see. We have to figure out how to foster that in the organic spaces that they are in, um, so, because they do gravitate toward that. And um, so I see a lot of hope in, they are not nationalistic in these spaces that they build themselves and where they have agency themselves. And we have to either figure out how to get out of the way, some of the systems that, that thwart that, or make sure we're in there um, fostering that. And they're not looking at Vanity Fair, so. <laughs> <laughs> Manju, last thoughts on representation and the, the possible Obama effect of backlash when there's more diversity in representation? Well, I think representation is key, right? People have to be able to, one, see themselves 
in media, right? Um, certainly for you know my kids to be able to see in commercials and TV, folks who look like them, who have experiences like them um, is critical. And so you've seen that on shows like Never Have I Ever, um, you know, Sex Lives of College Girls. For the first time, seeing South Asian women represented is, is so important. And I think for others outside of the community, knowing and understanding that they too are part of the community. We are not the other. We are Americans, right? Um, the Taft survey that I mentioned, um, 50 plus percent of Americans could not name a single Asian American. They named Bruce Lee, who died 50 years ago, and Jackie Chan, who is not even Asian American. Right. So unless we have that representation, we're not going to change some of those attitudes around perpetual foreignness that are so key to integration, to inclusivity and to the shifts that we really want to see in our country. Well, I want to just I know we're slightly over our allotted time, but um, I want to close with um, two notes. Uh, one, uh, just a, a note of appreciation for the texture. Uh, and the nuance in what our panelists brought here and what the questions have brought to the table uh, as well. And I think uh, it returns to this uh, note that I said earlier, which is that um, if we aim to stop hate uh, and if we aim in the, in the affirmative uh, to replace hate or to diminish hate and replace the, that with something positive, uh, wh whether you want to call it hope or uh, dare even call it civic love, um, then this is a matter of responsibility taking for all of us. And I don't mean that just in an easy way of, oh, you know, be an upstander. And if you see somebody picking on somebody, if you see an act of bullying or harassment, step in. Yes, that's the bare minimum right now. But the deeper and the harder thing, which has been slightly manifested in the kind of, within the constraints of our Q&A format here, is see each other as three-dimensional people. Humanize each other, right? The kinds of things that Dane is describing um, those young people uh, consuming all day long are all about kind of weaponized uh, uh, dehumanization. And we have to commit to a kind of civic curiosity, a kind of humanity that says, both at the individual scale, who are you, right? We're talking about Appalachia, we're talking about the South and Southern accents that, you know, some of you heard Manju's Southern accent, right? But not everybody would assume that uh, uh, this person of South Asian descent uh, grew up in Alabama, um, much less uh, came to this work because she had a mother who faced discrimination in the South and decided to do something about it uh, and, and filed a successful class action lawsuit that was a great civil rights advance in that. Like, there are stories here, right? And we have to complexify the story about each of us if we're ever going to complexify the story about all of us. Uh, and that is the responsibility that we have to take that is the beginning of reckoning with hate. So I want to thank you for joining this conversation. I know it will continue for those of us in the room uh, afterwards. Those of, us, um, those of you who sent in questions online, I didn't name any of them, but some of my questions were informed by them because almost 85% of them had to do with education and education spaces uh, and so forth. So I just really appreciate uh, the way in which all of us have engaged here today. Thank you for this session. Thanks again to our panelists. Manjusha Kulkarni is Executive Director of AAPI Equity Alliance, a coalition of organizations serving Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in Los Angeles. 
In 2020, she co-founded Stop AAPI Hate, an aggregator of COVID-19-related hate incidents against AAPIs. Along with her Stop AAPI Hate co-founders, she has been named to Times 100 and Bloomberg Businessweek's 50 Most Influential Individuals. Jonathan Greenblatt is CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Before that, he was director of the White House Office of Social Innovation and Civic Participation under President Obama. In 2022, he released his first book, It Could Happen Here, Why America is Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable and How We Can Stop It. Dana Kester is a professor at West Virginia University Reed College of Media. She is founder and editor-in-chief for the collaborative media outlet 100 Days in Appalachia, which received a National Edward R. Morrow Award for coverage on extremism and political violence. Eric Liu is co-founder and CEO of Citizen University, which works to build a culture of powerful and responsible citizenship in the United States. He also directs the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. Liu previously served as President Clinton's Deputy Domestic Policy Advisor, and President Obama appointed him to the Board of the Corporation for National and Community Service. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.